Before I began this journey, back in the fall of 2018 when I first learned Doreen's name, I had never heard of her. I had been on the brink of turning 10, about 10 miles away in Meriden, Connecticut, when she'd been shepherded away to that beautiful blue ramshackle farmhouse in Wallingford. She disappeared just days later. As a child of the 80s, I'd been lectured extensively on stranger danger, bad guys posing as cops, and supposed neighborhood good guys who might be anything but. Despite all this, Doreen Vincent was never on my radar. And almost 31 years after Doreen went missing, neither was her father, Mark. After Doreen vanished, it was Mark who filled out the missing persons report on June 18, 1988. He had last seen his daughter, Mark wrote, three days earlier, at the house where she had already been so unhappy. She had run away before, Mark noted, and this time she'd taken many clothes with her. Doreen's mother, Donna, wasn't allowed to make a statement that day, and it was only a year later, in 1989, when the Wallingford police realized something had gone horribly wrong. Since then, Mark Hunter Vincent has been the number one suspect in his daughter's disappearance. I believe he's a sociopath, and he'll take it to his grave, Donna told journalist Terry Sutton in 2014. Despite this suspicion, or maybe because of it, Mark's always been very vocal about how he's the real victim here. How if the cops had just focused elsewhere, they might have found the girl he has always claimed he loved more than anyone. I want to know what happened to her. The police have nothing, so they focused on me, Mark told Sutton. I loved her, and I know one day I will see her again in heaven. In 2019, following a gathering Sarah Dimio and I organized across from the farmhouse at Gouveia Vineyards, Mark hit almost identical notes with Lauren Tacoris of the Meriden Wallingford Record Journal. No one loved Doreen more than I do, he insisted. When asked about Sarah's podcast, Faded Out, on which my husband Joe and I served as producer and investigator, Mark said that the few bits he'd listened to had turned his stomach. They drew a conclusion, he fumed and frame their story around it. Our work was a joke, a sham, and a scam, he said, and he was considering legal action against us. Mark hung up before Tacoris could get anything more out of him, but I don't think she was too surprised. She'd only gotten a hold of Mark after going through David Vincent, Mark's son, with his third wife, Kathy. David had at first pretended to be Mark, then denied knowing where his father was, before hanging up himself. When it was my turn to speak to Decorus, I couldn't get the words out fast enough, and I never wanted the phone call to end. I took my lunch break at work and drove around and around, pouring fact upon fact, many of them about Mark's sordid history, into her ear. So when the Record Journal finally published Decorus's story, with only a few references to what she and I had discussed, it rocked me back on my heels. Jason Barry's old 2001 article took top billing, featured above the fold on the paper's front page, while the new information about our efforts to reignite the search for Doreen Vincent was a few pages in. The paper accused Sarah and me of getting most, if not all, of our information from what Barry had written more than 20 years ago. And that wasn't all. DeCorus's article called us amateurs and casually accused us of defaming Mark in what she called highly pejorative terms, like master manipulator, and sociopath. 
Takora seemed especially taken back with the fact that Joe had called Mark Hannibal Lecter-esque, like the fictional serial killer. What Takoris didn't grasp after her one brief exchange with Mark was that Joe wasn't likening him to Hannibal Lecter, serial killer. He was saying Mark was a serial riddler, a cat that likes to toy with his mouse before tearing it to shreds. Joe himself had experienced it firsthand over a series of texts and short calls with Mark beginning in December 2018. When Mark chastised him for bringing up Doreen at Christmas and trying to make Mark go round and round on the subject. Doreen, Mark told Joe, just happened to go missing when sex rings were ramping up in America. These days, Mark claimed, more and more kids were going missing because the rings had the government's backing, and the government had what he called the juice. It was all right, though, Mark said, because he loved Doreen and he would see her in glory. Does that mean she's dead? Joe asked and Mark bristled. Why would I guess it's something like that, he asked. At that point, we all assumed we would never hear from Mark Vinson again. But we did, over and over, because Mark likes to talk, and he likes to know what we know. Most importantly, he likes to play games. As always, I must stress that I have no direct proof that Mark Vinson is responsible for the disappearance or death of his daughter, that he killed Doreen, whether intentionally or accidentally, and secreted her body away somewhere. But even if he didn't, then his calm, unruffled approach to the last 30-plus years is nothing short of enraging. Because here is a father who has never looked for his daughter, never reported her missing when she actually vanished, never followed up with the police, never took to the streets to find her, and never spoke to Donna again. Somehow, he's been able to do it, to walk through life like he doesn't have a care in the world. And when you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. Because Mark has always been protected. Even after his own mother cast him out, well before he walked away from his father's funeral, Mark could always count on a soft landing. While I give the Wallingford cops credit for finally launching a search for Doreen back in 1989 and busting Mark on that gun charge, I can't help but wonder what could have been different if they'd let Donna speak back on June 18, 1988. The media, including but not limited to the Record Journal, gave Doreen short shrift back then, and today seems afraid to write a bad word, even when that bad word is factual, about Mark. And it's not just the police and the media who can be accused of coddling Mark Vincent. I'd argue that many in Mark's life have gone past the point of coddling and straight into ride-or-die mode. Sharon protected Mark. Women across the state of Connecticut protected Mark. Maybe even people in positions of real power have protected Mark. So I thought it was time to lay Mark's story bare, letting the facts and the voices of those who know him speak for themselves. I wanted to try to make him face himself and his God because to hear the man himself tell it, there is only one protector worth talking about, and that's Jesus Christ himself. This is Jessica fritz Aguirre with Sticky Beak, Season 2, Episode 7, The Tale of Mark Hunter Vincent. This is Part 1, Fireworks Wars. Walk softly, children. Children, find your freedom, little children. Walk softly, children. 
Hey, it's Jess. Thanks as always for continuing to listen to Sticky Beak, the story of my investigation into the disappearance of Doreen Jane Vincent. This one's going to be a doozy. It took weeks to write and somehow spawned three chapters. Please continue to share and review the show, which gets us the exposure Doreen so desperately needs. And don't forget to join the Sticky Beaks Facebook group. If you're feeling extra generous, please consider becoming a Sticky Beak patron on www.patreon.com backslash stickybeak. For $5 a month, you can get access to a bunch of extras, including immediate access to chapters two and three of this episode, Snow Peas and Ashes, and The Blood and the Buddha, which means you don't have to wait to listen. You can always message me at justicefordory at gmail.com. I'm very excited to announce that we have a new sponsor, JPEX Financial Group in Glastonbury, Connecticut. It's a female-run company offering customized strategies and objective advice, well-suited to your needs. Carol and Jamie's approach is personal and distinctive to your mission and objectives. In short, their focus is, and always will be, on you. Investors, retirees, and families, now is the time to plan your future. Please visit their website at www.raymondjames.com backslash Financial. Now, on to the show. Doreen Jane Vincent's father, Mark Hunter Vincent, was born on August 19, 1956, to Lori and George of Bethel, Connecticut. Mark would be the second born and eventually the second brother of three, with two sisters rounding out the clan. It was a point of pride for the Vincents that each of their children had an unusual middle name, and Mark's was no different. Mark was trouble from day one. Here's his brother Brad, older by one year. Mom said he was very difficult birth and was very difficult from day one, but as far as of course, I'm clueless on this stuff at that early age. Uh, growing up, we did normal brother things. We, you know, beat the crap out of each other, you know, got in fights, stuff like that. As Brad and Mark got older, they were both a bit of a handful. Granted, we both did things, and he got caught more times than I did. Fireworks. <laughs> we had fireworks wars. Fireworks are illegal there, but we went to South Carolina. We got fireworks. We bring them back. We have fireworks wars. We have a, a bunch of guys, two teams, shooting fireworks at each other, a fort here and a fort there. Wait, the how old were you? Mid-teens, because we were driving. We had to go down and get the stuff. So, you know, 16, 17 at that point, he gets caught. I didn't get caught. And my dad has to go down and bail him out of jail you know, two o'clock in the morning type of thing. But while Brad would go on to be class valedictorian and an engineer, Mark seemed to relish trouble, getting picked up for crimes ranging from burglary to robbery to assault and battery. When I first contacted Mark's family, I was entirely unsure how they felt about their black sheep, and I was fully prepared for them to tell me where to stick my questions. But the stress and pain that Mark had caused them for years poured out like a river. There had been a phone in the family's kitchen, they told me, and the house had been awakened night after night, year after year, by calls from the cops with news of some new mess Mark had gotten into. One of the first things the family did was refer me to the Bethel Police Department, who'd been trying to bust Mark, they told me, for years. And it was true. According to private investigator Kingsley, a Bethel police officer in a prior life, 
Mark had once tried to fight him on the town streets over a moving violation. In the midst of all his hell-raising, Mark set his sights on a young local girl named Donna Murad. Looking back, Donna says she thought he looked like Tom Cruise. Years later, Donna's mother Jane put her bluntly classic spin on it. He was a very good-looking man. I mean, he was, very, he was extremely good-looking. He could have been a movie star. That's how good-looking he was. Mm-hmm. But his personality was like a, that much of a pee. Looking back, Donna's mother remembers the hold her daughter had on young Mr. Vincent. Did you come into contact with him when Donna became pregnant, or did you know him before that? Were they dating for a while before that? Well, they dated a short time, and then she got pregnant. And then, yeah, they, it wasn't very long. I, I think he really, I think Donna was his first love, and that's it. I don't know if there's anything after after her. I mean, he's just been through a lot of relationships, but I kind of think she was his idol, and that was it, you know? Far from being two star-crossed lovers, their start was something less than ideal. Here's Donna. It's not like I... I cared about him or I, I didn't I'm not like pining him. for him right oh my god <laughs> no I don't think I was from the day we got married you said you don't think you were ever in love with him uh-uh you didn't even I know, know what that I was. wasn't I know I wasn't what happened was he was the first boy mm-hmm. okay I ever went out with because I wasn't really allowed to date I was only 15 years old and then I you know I get pregnant 16 15 years old whatever mm-hmm. it was and next thing you know, I felt like, you know, I was being pressured to get married because now I'm pregnant. So now I got to get married. And, and that's kind of the way it went mm-hmm. when we were dating. OK, I, you know, I'd be out with my friends, you know, which is where you want to go when you're a 15, 16 year old girl. You want to be out with your friends. We're out there and we're having doing whatever we're doing. And I'd see his car ride by because he was 19. I was only like 15, 16. So. You know, I'd see his car ride by and I'd be hiding from <laughs> I would, because I don't want to be bothered like that. I want to have fun. And then I go and get pregnant, and then we go and get married. And like I said, I, I, I was not in love with him. I wasn't. I didn't know what love was. Who knows what love is at 16 years old, you know? How do you think he felt about you? I think he was obsessed. I, he was obsessed with me. Mm-hmm. He made me insane. He, he did. It was 1975. And Donna, just a kid, was not in love. But with Doreen's impending arrival on the horizon, Donna's parents decided what they thought was best, and that was that the two be made to marry. Here are Donna's sisters, Carol and Debbie. They were angry at first. Okay. Yeah. They weren't happy with him. But then they were very supportive. When they decided they were going to get married and have the baby, they were very supportive. They moved everywhere we moved. They always fixed up a place for them. Yeah. It seemed like things were coming together at that point. Like part of the family. Yeah. Yeah, He was just accepted. They were trying Mm -hmm. to accept him and the whole situation, help him. Because they still wanted her to go to school. Joe Murad, younger brother to Donna, Debbie, and Carol, was a bit more blunt. You know, she got married to Mark at, what, 15? I always wonder why the fuck my parents let that go down. Yeah. (laughs) Well, it's different. I think 75 was such a different time. I guess, what would the alternatives have been? She just raised the kid by herself, or? Uh, Yeah, I guess. I guess, uh, yeah, well, my parents help her. It'll probably be the best way. They ended up with her anyway. Right, right. For a lot of her years. Well, I think Mark and Donna were living with them with the baby for a while, right? Yeah, in their basement. In various areas he lived with us. I think he lived with us in Danbury, and he lived with us in New Fairfield. And maybe Ansonia? Does that ring a bell? In Bethel. In Bethel. Okay. Bethel, yeah, he lived 
able to, and then finally my grandmother let him get a house in Ansonia, and he fucked it all up. He like, he did like a half-ass remodel, and then ended up fucking it all up, and my grandmother hated Donna forever for that. And then all of a sudden, later on, like, my grandmother started to like Donna later on. She was her favorite after a while. How'd he <laughs> fuck it up? My grandmother was a strange bird. So. <laughs> How did he fuck it up? I don't remember. I remember she was just mad at him for ruining the house. She thought it was the best house <clears> in the world, but it was probably the oldest house in Ansonia. Because Carol told me she remembered him doing something with, like, in the basement with, like, big beams underneath or yeah, something. Like, I don't know. He, he, did, he didn't finish it. I, don't quote me, but I, I just think he just didn't finish the job yeah. and left it a wreck, you know? Well, because you know that's, like, what he prides himself on now, right? He's, like, the general contractor for that Teen Challenge place. Uh, yeah, I've heard that. Yeah. yeah. Um, back then, he was, uh, he, he was a good carpenter, very good with his hands, from what I remember. He used to build crazy shit with, like, uh, he used to, like, finish logs and stuff like that. You know, where that shiny finish back in the day for yeah. benches, things like that. With that lacquer <clears throat> stuff on a log, you know, as a bench. When baby Doreen was born on September 30th, 1975, Mark was in prison for the illustrious crime of burglarizing a payphone. While the families can't be sure, it was around that time that Mark Vincent first found Jesus. Here's Brad. He's a con artist. He's full of shit. You know, the times that he's been religious is when he's coming out of prison. The rest of the time, he's a derelict. I I know I don't have to tell you this, but that's the way his whole life has been. But I feel like he's been a Christian the whole time because, and I, when I say Christian. Only when it's convenient, when, when, when he requires it, when he requires it, when he requires Doreen to wear a certain set of clothing, not look like a slut. You know, this is when the coming out of prison, whenever he has his alleged mind set on something, there's no logic to it. It's just his demented mind. So no logic at all in Mark. He gets on a you know a little trip, especially coming out of prison, and then he's all fired up about religion. And then that quickly fades, and he's back to his old self. So somehow he has the ability to convince himself that he's on the right path type of thing, and that everybody else is wrong. He's always been that way. I don't know. It gets magnified when he goes to prison and he comes out. Born again Christian. He's a Christian when it's convenient. That's all I can say. Otherwise, <laughs> he's a useless member of society that takes advantage of other people. I mean, that's what he does. I know you know this, but that's what he does. He's a, a major con artist and liar, and he just uses people as he needs them to be used. While in prison, Mark kept in touch with not only Donna, but also her two sisters, who were 11 and 12 at the time, by writing them letters telling them he'd been born again. You've heard about Mark's letters before. This time, he also wrote a letter to the judge, asking to be released so he could be there for the birth of his daughter. Were you guys married when he was in prison for burglary? Yes. So Doreen was a baby and he was in prison. Okay. And he was in prison? Yep. Was he in prison when she was born? No. They let him out on good behavior? No, because I was pregnant. They let her out. Oh. He wrote a letter to the judge and the judge I love Stephanie at the end there. He's a good bullshitter, huh? Once Mark was out of jail, 
for the moment at least, he settled down a bit with his new wife and baby. For a while, maybe he even thought he could make a go of it. The dozens of photos I've seen of him with little Doreen and Donna make it appear as though they're living a decent little life. One picture from Christmas 1976, taken at Mark's childhood home on Sunset Hill Road in Bethel, shows the little family with Lori and George, Mark's four siblings, and someone I believe to be Mark's grandfather. Baby Doreen is in Mark's arms. Kneeling in front of the group with her young daughter-in-law, Lori has taken Donna's hand protectively into her lap, clutching it while beaming for the camera. Donna, her long dark hair spilling down her back, looks less enthused, smiling but bearing no teeth. Even then, there is no hint of the strike Mark has caused his parents, or Donna himself. Despite photos like this, Mark was never a favorite of Donna's mom, but then again, neither was his mother. According to Grandma Jane, they were just too much alike. It wasn't that he would do something, it was his behavior that was very, it was like, that's, that's how he was. He, he was like, obsessed. Like if he, he grew plants, instead of growing one, he'd grow 50. Okay. You know what I'm saying? And it had to be a certain way. And that's what he did. When he had a trailer, when he lived in a trailer, he had all these beautiful plants. He, I think he, he admired his mother. Mm-hmm. And, and she was a plant person. And he would like plants. And he would get plants. And he'd put them under this beautiful light, this light. And he had them growing beautifully. But he was obsessed with it. You know, he had like 30 plants in a little area. Stuff that wasn't even important in life. I saw something about him and his mother where he talked about how his mother would swim laps or something like that. And she had all sorts of plants she, around. She, and then, you know, she probably had, I think she died of cancer or something like that. I'm not sure what she died of. Yeah, it was something like that, I think. Yeah. Um, she, she was very, she, she, he was very much like her. Very much. Debbie said. I, I, it, was both, well, it was both his mother and father passed away. I think his father passed away first. Okay. I think his father passed away. He was a pretty good, he was an okay guy, you know, I mean, I didn't really know him. Just hello, hello, and that's it. Well, I met him a couple of times, but... What was his mother like? You said like him, but can you describe her? She always was saying something, and it was like she would have to prove a point. She was a very cold person, let's put it this way. She, she wasn't a very warm person. You know, when you meet somebody, you know if they're warm or not. She wasn't. Yeah. She was not a warm person at all. She was, like, very, really, really, like, off the wall. And that's how he is. Mark is very cold. He's a very cold person. But it wasn't just Mark's obsession with plants that got under Jane's skin. Her son-in-law straight up scared her, made her feel uncomfortable in her own house. Donna says he never laid a hand on her. And all the other... So I've talked to a couple women that Mark knows, you know, romantic relationships, whatever. Never laid a hand, but he would do things to intimidate and to frighten. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Like, he'd come up driving his car like a maniac and step on a brake and squeal it. You know, like, um, he's like, like a raving maniac. Yep. And then walk in the house like it was nothing. Donna and other women from Mark's past also have stories like that, with Mark tearing down the road as fast as he could go, trying to terrify them into silence and submission. We would go to Highlight, Milford Highlight, and he would try to pick up the waitresses or he'd flirt with them. As I'm coming out of the bathroom or say I'm getting a ticket and I see him smiling or he grabs her or something, I'm like, really? Yeah. He says, what? What? What's your problem? I said, I don't have a problem. 
I'm like, I don't need this shit in my life. You know, I'm here. I was trying to help you find your kid. And that night he drove home from Highlight and Route 8. You're familiar with that. In the yeah. nighttime, no lights. He's going like 120. I thought that was it. I was, I was going to die. And I couldn't stop him. He was just slowing down. He's laughing. It was like I'm a fucking horror show. Apparently, Mark loves driving like a maniac to this day with countless men from Teen Challenge getting in touch to let me know he must have a death wish. He's even tried to commandeer a car or two, because Mark is used to getting what he wants. Here's Dennis, who knows Mark well from Teen Challenge. You're going to be hearing a lot from Dennis, so make sure to remember his name, which I've changed, along with his voice, for his protection. First running I had him, I used to do a lot of driving up there, the ministry and he asked me one time somebody gave me the keys and wanted to go do some some driving and he said oh i could do that and, you know little boy voices about it stuff he's very forward sometimes even kind of rude in a way and then he kind of has this funny little laugh like he's half joking it's kind of creepy but anyhow i said uh, no no that's no that's okay um, i i can take i can take care of the drive no, no problem but as much as Mark loved cars, his real weapon of choice was a gun. Oh, God, the man was obsessed with guns. Yes, he was. He loved his guns. I don't know if he was a collector, but because I hate guns. So he never showed me all of them, but I'd see every now and then he'd have a gun. But Jane's list of reasons to mistrust Mark didn't end there. Even if he considered Donna the love of his life, it's not like Mark was taking his wedding vow seriously. Jane and Donna learned that the hard way. You know, he had to do something that was stupid. And he's always done something stupid. You know, I caught him. He was cheating on my daughter. And I caught him. I caught him. And, and I was scared of him because and I ran out. And it, it happened on a phone call. I picked up the phone. We had like two upstairs and downstairs phone. And I picked up the phone and I heard him talking to somebody that he shouldn't have been talking to. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I listened for a little bit, and he knew I was on the phone, and he came running upstairs, and I ran out the door. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, was, I was scared of him because I knew what he would have done to me. I, I'm almost positive. I'm sure he would have clobbered me in some way, but I just got out of the house, and he was never, and I just, that's, that's what happened. And that, so I kind of was afraid of him. Well, here's After a- that, I just, I knew I could never trust him, and I knew that. The mystery woman on the phone wasn't the only one especially as Mark and Donna's relationship veered from on again to off again. Pictures from a Christmas party at his mother's in 1978, when Doreen was three, show a beaming Mark with his arms wrapped around an equally glowing brunette, her hair feathered Charlie's Angels style. Mark and Logan, the photo back reads. And Logan wasn't the only one either. That year, Mark also began dating a blonde named Teresa, whom he met working at the Southbury Training School. Many of you might remember Teresa Lyon from earlier on this podcast, as well as Faded Out. If you haven't listened to those episodes, do yourself a favor and check them out. Teresa remembered Mark as a hothead who would do crazy stuff, like light the spray from an aerosol can on fire and aim it directly at their coworker, Marianne. Teresa is quite the storyteller, and just how much she might embellish has never been clear to me. When I got in touch with Marianne, she vehemently denied the aerosol can story, as well as even knowing a Mark Vincent. But that doesn't mean there's not truth in everything Teresa says. Filling in details about Lori's boyfriend, the Southbury Training School janitor, after her divorce from Mark's father, George, Teresa insisted the boyfriend had one arm 
I found this ridiculous until Mark's family confirmed for me, laughing, that the janitor was very real indeed. His name was Walter, and he was known every once in a while to have a shot with both Lori and George, and Mark and Brad too. Turns out Wally the one-armed Russian, as the Vincent kids called him, was a pretty cool guy, except when he was poo-pooing Lori's cooking. Anyway, Teresa was smitten, with Mark, not Wally. We were both state employees. I met him because he worked where my sister worked, in the cottage. They were called cottages. And we hooked up, and, you know, he, he suddenly moved in with me. I had just gotten my own apartment, my sister and I, and we were living there, and he, he moved in. And I'm like, okay, and I, you know, I'm 18 years old. I'm in love, and I'm like, oh, he's dropped dead gorgeous, and this. But he always had that dark side, even way back then. I didn't, there was something fishy about him. And then he left. <clears throat> I came home from work one day. I didn't see him at work. All his stuff's gone, and his mother worked she dated the janitor up there, the custodial guy up there. And I asked him one day, I said, where's Mark? I haven't seen him or heard. Now remember, there's no cell phones. There's no nothing throughout any of this. Mm -hmm. And he said, oh, he went back with his wife and kid. Now that's the first I knew of it. So he's living with me under the pretense that he's single. And, and then he had the audacity to come and visit me at my apartment with Doreen. She was three years old, cute as a butt, and all dressed up. And I, I always said, she just come out of church. It was like on an east, it felt like Easter or something. She was all frilly, cute, you know, a little dark here. Even when things weren't so great with Donna, Mark made sure to put on a happy face for others in his orbit, including Donna's younger brother, Joe. What do you remember Mark like? Like in shape, very fast, very athletic as a kid. He was always like just muscular and, you know, probably from jail and badass tattoos and da-da-da. Just the fastest guy on the field, very athletic. We'd have other people from the neighborhood and playing football and stuff, and he was always the best player. I think he was just the oldest, too, you know what I mean? And, that, and I was young. I was like a little kid wearing a freaking helmet during a, you know, a tackle football <laughs> game that everybody else had no something on, you know? <laughs> He might have been not athletic, you know, to be honest with you. But he was definitely a muscular guy. Tall, skinny, athletic, but, you know. Like I said, I was a kid. I was six years old, so that looks big to me. You know, maybe, maybe he wasn't so big now that I think about it. I don't know Mark that well. I know Mark when I was a kid. I just know what I hear from my sisters. Right. Didn't you say you thought he was cool when you were a kid? Yeah, he was like the cool guy. He was muscular and he was, you know, he always was protective of me. He really liked me. Uh, he, we hung out a lot. And I, and I remember as a kid, I wanted to break the pogo stick record. <laughs> and uh, how, how many times on a pogo stick, you know, you could jump up and down. And uh, he would be the guy who counted. But I think he was just bullshit counting, you know. <laughs> He's <laughs> like, 56. You did 56. I'd do that. And then you know, he had a go-kart, you know what I mean? So that was like a fun thing to do. And Was that at his house? Uh, we went to different parks and stuff like that to uh, do it on the cement and stuff like that. Did you do it at um, Huntington ever? You remember that park? No, I don't remember that. I remember taking us fishing in Redding, Connecticut. We used to catch a million fish, but we'd have to make our own poles and shit. We were we didn't have, uh, I don't think we had enough money to, for everybody to fish. And it took us to like a great spot where we'd catch a fish every time we threw it in. Was that at like a, was that at a park or was that at somebody's house? Cause I know your sisters went fishing at some woman's house. I don't know where it was. I was such a youngster. Yeah, you were a kid, right? Oh, uh, yeah, I was a kid. I was maybe, I don't know how old I was, six, five. Oh, wow, yeah. Really young. So I didn't know Mark too well. Because you're, is there about, what, like 12 years difference between you and Donna? About? 
She's like 60-something. Yep. What? 60 what? 62, I want to say. And I'm 51, so 11 years difference. Joe wasn't the only one Mark had suckered. Here's cousin Mary, who was just a couple of years older than Doreen. The only memories, really, that I had of Mark, and, and I'm not proud of it, but the memories I had of Mark were good memories when he put on this giant fireworks display for everybody. One fourth of July. Hundreds, probably thousands of dollars to get the family to all like him and trust him. Yep. I see now that it was a manipulative move, but at the time, as a kid, we thought, wow, this guy's awesome. Oh, my God. Like, well, Joe was telling I mean, me, Joe told me a bunch idea. of stories. Joe thought that Mark was, like, the best thing since sliced bread. Oh, absolutely. He would take people for rides on his motorcycle. As kids, he would throw us up in the air, catch us, and, and twirl us around. And I mean, because he was strong. And you saw different sides of him, but I only saw that side of him. I never saw the dark side of him. But the mask Mark put on for the outside world wasn't cutting it in his marriage which was doomed from the very beginning. Here's Donna. I was like 17 years old. I want a job. You know, I just yeah. had a kid. You think I want to sit home with a kid all day? <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm 16 years old. I, I got to get out. And I got a job. I said, because basically, how about you? I'm going to get a job and you're going to be babysitting or somebody's going to be babysitting because I got to get I had gotten a job at McDonald's. Mm -hmm. <laughs> then I got a job in 1980, it was. It was 1980 because mm -hmm. I had gotten a job at Fairfield Hills. And that was a state employee, and I was mm -hmm. so proud. I was making $4.58 an hour to start there in 1980. That was good, though. And that was good money. And it was early 90s, because I started in March of 1980. Yep. And I remember he put me down so much because I had a job. He thought it was horrible, you know. You should be working for yourself. And then blah, 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 blah. I working got a job there. Working for yourself anyway. doing what? Well, he used to work for himself. He used Because he is, he could do carpentry. He could do anything. He's jack of all trades, mm -hmm. master of none. But <laughs> yeah. he is. He could do it. Yeah. He could. He was he was very good with his hands. Do you think he had any formal training or he just kind of sees it? There no, he just saw it. it. He just did it. I remember one time he got pissed off at me at my parents' house. This was in New Fairfield, and he hit the, hit a hammer through a wall, you know? And I'm like, oh, it's my parents' house. You know, now, now I'm mad at him, you know, and everything. I was just getting to know Donna and her family, and this was the first time I'd heard about Mark's infamous temper. I asked Donna if she'd been afraid of Mark. So he was never abusive. Were you scared? You think no. no. I, I, I'm not going to say I was scared, afraid of him, because I really wasn't. I, I really didn't have any respect for him. I really didn't want him. I could care less, you know, go, whatever, you know, do whatever you're going to do, whatever. I just got married because everybody kind of pressured me into it, you know, because I, I was I don't think she was really scared of him until after Doreen went missing, and then I think she realized. <clears throat> he got pissed off at me one time, and like, about, we're about this far away, and he pulled a gun on me, and he shot it over there. I just, I, it didn't even scare me, because I just knew that he wouldn't shoot me. I knew that, you know, he, he was just being a, I don't know. Donna couldn't remember why Mark had shot at her, but he did. He was pissed he recently told Donna's sister, Debbie, that we had failed to report that he'd shot because he found Donna in bed with another man. He has me there. But Mark's memory is also selective because a gun wasn't the only weapon that he'd used to try to keep Donna at heel. He was also known to put broken glass in their marital bed when he was mad at her. By 1979, Mark's relationships were falling apart all around him. On March 23rd of that year, his mother wrote him that infamous letter. Mark, 
actually, it is the 24th, as it is 1 a.m., and I have not been able to get to sleep because of the wheels turning about you. I shall try to say what I have to say as quickly and clearly as possible. It is not fair to me to have to live with you any longer. I firmly believe that you getting out and being on your own is a question of survival, yours and mine. Less than a year later, Mark and Donna's marriage would break down irretrievably, with a judge granting them a divorce on those grounds on February 5, 1980. When I asked Grandma Jane if she thought the marriage ended because Mark couldn't control Donna, she was quick to agree. That was a problem. I think, <laughs> I think that's probably why he really cared for her a lot, because she wouldn't put up with his bull. And usually, he probably, I bet he probably left all the women that he was gone with, and she left him. Donna, of course, had her own thoughts on why she left. When you get pushed like that far down and you're, you're being pushed, pushed, you don't even care. It's just like, you know, get away from me. I just can't stand you, you know. It, go ahead, shoot. You know, you feel, you know, you get like that. But it's, it's I don't know, it's just so hard to describe. I, I can't stand him, though. I, I loathe the man. If he were dying, I just want him to say what he did. Tell the truth about what you did. That's all. Other, other, I wouldn't spit on him if he were on fire. That seems like a good place to stop for now. It's nice to give Donna the last word. Remember, part two of the tale of Mark Hunter Vincent, entitled Snow Peas and Ashes, will be released a week after this episode, and part three, The Blood and the Buddha, a week after that. If you want them immediately, please head on over to www.patreon.com backslash stickybeak and pledge $5 a month. Until then, see you next time. Walk softly, children. Walk softly, children. Walk softly, children. Find your freedom, little children.